Hello and welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. A quick shout out to a couple of our local non uh, local business partners. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, that's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. They've uh, got catering service as well, and you can order through uh, their takeout program. Again, the dining room not open yet, but hopefully uh, that might change in the near future. But right now you can do takeout for breakfast, lunch, and supper at Gateway Marketing Cafe seven days a week. Uh, thanks also to Noche Jazz and Cabaret. That's Des Moines' premier location for jazz. They will be opening soon for a limited concert menu, but uh, they've also got concerts uh, via live stream. You can check those out on Wednesdays and Saturdays, sometimes other dates as well. That's Noche Jazz and Cabaret. All right, again, thanks, folks, for tuning in to today's program. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Later in the program, Maya Phelps is joining us. She's a young woman from uh, a small town in Iowa who was, um, who was uh, featured in a very um, disturbing uh, incident involving the Black Lives Matter protest and some very aggressive uh, members of the uh, Des Moines Police Department. We'll also talk uh, with uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry from, uh, from New Orleans, who has been on the front lines of fighting the coronavirus crisis. And we'll also talk about the historic ruling that just happened today regarding the Dakota Access Pipeline with Kathy Burns. But with me uh, today, uh, the first segment of our conversation is uh, Nathan Donnelly. He's with the uh, Center for Biological Diversity. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. And so uh, we've been talking a bunch about dicamba because that's a pretty darn important issue here in Iowa. And um, much has happened, including um, a court ruling and including a um, subsequent action by the EPA, which, as I understand, essentially maintains the status quo, correct? Yeah, that's right. So uh, EPA originally, when uh, they canceled these products, they um, uh, told growers that they were allowed to use the existing stocks they had up until the end of July of this year. Um, uh, we, we challenged that decision saying that, you know, those existing stocks should not be able to be used, uh, but the court sided with EPA on that. So what we're looking at for 2020 is pretty much going to be similar to what it was in 2019, where you're going to have uh, dicamba being sprayed uh, throughout much of the growing season. Uh, there are a lot of states that have um, cutoff dates already imposed, so you would not be able to, to use dicamba in those states, but there are many states that allow um, a dicamba to be used according to the federal label and that could be you know potentially up to the end of july now typically uh, are do farmers even apply dicamba in august or later uh generally not right there are some restrictions on the label um uh, you know dictating when is sort of the last date you could apply depending on when you planted your crops yeah uh cotton is generally sprayed a little bit uh uh later than soybeans so yeah. what what we'll probably see is in some of the southern states there will be some, some yeah. later applications now i know a lot of folks who listen to this program are very concerned about genetically modified organisms about uh, about the uh, about the viability of organic agriculture um and and you know dicamba is not maybe a household term for many urban listeners who aren't involved with farming but i think more and more people are understanding that uh that there is a problem. Here is an example of a, of a very um, a highly toxic chemical that um, doesn't seem to know how to behave itself. It doesn't stay where it's put. 
it gets up, it wanders around, it ends up on a neighboring farmer's field. And, and the problem there is we've had, um, we've had so many farmers, even conventional soybean farmers in the upper Midwest, who have been affected by dicamba drift that the, the lawsuits have poured in. Uh, the damage has been incredible. And uh, as a result, there has been a settlement involving uh, Bear. I mean, and when you think Bear, folks think Monsanto, which again was recently purchased by Bear. And uh, that settlement seems like a pretty big price tag, 400 million bucks. But uh, Nathan, my my, incent, my my impression is that 400 million bucks is not going to go that far when it comes to trying to compensate those farmers who suffered a loss because of dicamba drift. You're right. Um, I actually don't. I don't think it will either. Um, one of the worrisome things to me about that settlement is that that 400 million dollars is earmarked for um, people who have documented pretty much. Uh, uh, you know, unambiguous damage from dicamba. Now, in order to prove that, you really need to have uh, really major documentation. In some cases, you might even need to have sent tissue samples off to a lab uh, to get them tested for dicamba at your own expense. So, you know, that type of documentation really isn't standard practice. And so I'm a little worried that people who have suffered dicamba damage may not be able to access these funds if they don't have photographs, uh, records of the dates of damage, uh, and maybe even tissue samples. So we'll see what ends up happening um, through this, you know, what level of damage you have to prove in order to access this money. But it seems like a pretty high bar to me. So um, that's a little worrisome. And who will be making the decision as to whether or not a farmer's claim to damages is valid? Gosh, that's a good question. I'm actually not, not sure. Um, and I, I'm not sure if that's in the details of, of the settlement or if that still has to be worked out or not. Well, I mean, that, that, could, that could influence them. Um, that could say a lot about how the money is going to roll out. But um, the bottom line is, as you said, there's a lot of steps that farmers would have had to have taken while the damage was occurring. And that's also during the busiest time of the agricultural year. You know, and, and to think that, um, that a farmer may have missed one or more of those steps that's entirely not just possible, but probable. So it seems like there may be a, a lot of folks who have received some damage that uh, may go uncompensated. Yeah, I think that's a possibility. And we'll sort of see how things go once once this gets rolled out and the settlement is actually signed and, and things start going into effect. But um, yeah, just reading the language in the settlement from news reports, uh, it makes me a little worried because, you know, how do you prove that it can be damaged. There's always someone who can say, oh, well, that could have been 2,4-D or, sure. oh, well, that, you know, could have been some other non-herbicide effect. Aphids, uh, so, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Blame it on yeah, some I mean, insect, you know? There's there's a million things, yeah. that, you know, you could say in order to prevent someone from accessing those funds. So, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's just something that we really need to keep an eye on and make sure that, um, you know, specialty crop growers, organic crop growers uh, are adequately compensated for the damages they've received. Now I'm going to pull this number out of my, my memory bank, memory bank, Nathan, but I want to say that at one point they were assessing or estimating that there were $3.7 billion worth of damage in just one calendar year. Do I have that number correct? Uh, I'm not sure of that okay. actual number, but it okay. wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the, the amount of damage to, to people's crops and their yields, yeah. um, as well as just, you know, 
damage to, to you know, environmental resources in general uh, is really substantial. Yeah, and $400 million is, is definitely not not what I was hoping to see. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure why, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of variables that went into to why that settlement number came to be. But um, I, I really was hoping for, for a much bigger number. Yeah, with a company as, as um, big as Bayer, uh, with as deep with deep pockets as they have, I imagine four hundred million is a pretty small amount of money to uh, to to lose to these settlements. Um, now, my my other impression was that uh, again, soybean farmers who don't raise dicamba beans are just one of the many victims of dicamba drift. Uh, I mean, and I you know you hear story. I've I've heard stories of. Uh, of a there was a, a pepper farmer in northern Iowa who had his entire crop decimated. There are stories from Missouri of um, fruit growers who've had their trees wiped out, and uh, you know at some point uh, you, you would think that the you, you'd hope that the uh, compensation program would include farmers of all stripes. But my impression is is that the lion's share of the money intended to be used for compensation for damage in this four hundred million dollar settlement. It has to go to other soybean farmers. Am I, am I correct about that? I think you're right. I mean, just to, you know, in terms of numbers, there's there are generally a, a lot more soybean growers in these areas than there are specialty crop growers. Um, there's obviously a lot of reasons for that. Um, so yeah, I think I think soybean farmers uh, will probably end up getting the lion's share of this. And you know, I think the the real issue here with dicamba is is that it's not just harming um non dicamba tolerant soybeans uh it's really making the entire midwest and and much of the south uh you know where you can't really grow anything other than these commodity crops that have a specific genetic modification and it's really i think there have been a lot of efforts by some states to try to diversify the crops in these regions, right? So they're not just soybeans, not just corn, not just cotton, right. um, but try and get a little bit of diversity into the mix because that's ultimately going to be a better way to to protect, you know, incomes from a lot of these these fluctuating markets. Right. So I, I think dicamba can can really uh, really be a disincentive for people to diversify their crops and for right. to have organic and specialty crop growers. Uh, come to places like Iowa to grow their crops. Well, and we have plenty of Iowans who want to diversify and who are diversifying, and they're running into those types of problems. And again, is that fair? Absolutely not. Um, but how is it going to change? Well, that's the big question because again, there's a very powerful, uh, you know, interest here that uh, wants to see the situation continue as it is. So um, my my other question for you: You're with the uh, Center for Biological Diversity, and your interest is obviously greater than agriculture what impact if any does dicamba have on the natural world beyond agricultural crops yeah so we you know there have been many many reports of of nature refuges uh being harmed different plants and trees in these areas that you know so much land has been developed and cultivated now we just have just a small fraction of a percent of the land in you know particularly places like the midwest set aside specifically for nature and for you know non-human animals to thrive in and so you know these refuges are really very important 
uh, oases in this sea of wheat and corn and soy. And so what we've been seeing is these refuges in, in places like Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, um, are really, you know, the trees there are getting hit, all the, you know, plants are being defoliated, and that's ultimately impacting the animal life, the wildlife around there. So the, um, so the, also di- don't, so, di- di- so you see dicamba drift, just to be clear, also affects um, trees in the, in the wild, plants in the wild. Absolutely. There's been a lot of documentation of that, and even more so now that people are starting to become aware of what dicamba damage looks like. Right. You know, if you're not if you're not really looking for it, you can really miss it. But if you, you know, go up and look at these leaves, a lot of them have, you know, they're curled mm-hmm. up like that typical dicamba damage you see uh, in soybeans. Yeah. And, you know, it can set up a, a, an instance where you have 100-year-old trees that have survived droughts and floods um, succumbing to dicamba hmm. after two or three years of, of constant exposure. Yeah. So it's really, um, it's really harming these areas. So re- re- realistically, do you see a path forward uh, away from chemical intensive agriculture to a system that is uh, better for the land, better for the consumer, and again, better for diversity of, of production? I think there there is a good path forward. You know, it's it's we, we've we've gone down this unsustainable path for quite a long time. So I think the path forward is not necessarily going to be an easy or a quick one. Um, but what we need to make sure we're not doing is moving backwards. And with the approval of uh, new uses of dicamba and 2,4-D and many of these other other herbicides, you know, we're moving backwards with that. And so now, hopefully. Uh, with with these successful challenges moving forward, we can stop moving backward and start moving forward. Right. And so I think we need to start looking at different things like, you know, possibly like incentives being put in place um, to use more sustainable growing methods, yeah. uh, incentives to diversify crops, stuff like that, uh, because that's really going to get us to where we yeah. want to be. Well, let's hope more of that uh, picks up some speed. Uh, Nathan, thank you uh, so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Folks, we've been talking with Nathan Donnelly. He's with the Center for uh, Biological Diversity. And uh, we'll be back in a minute. We're going to talk with Maya Phelps about the recent Black Lives Matter protest here in Des Moines. That got a lot of attention and drew a lot of concern. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, 
Tina Haas Finley and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest-running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, thanks again to our local sponsors for making this program possible. Thanks to Hawk Restaurant. That's H-O-Q Hawk Restaurant, located in the East Village of Des Moines. 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. They've now got patio seating as well, and they continue to do their Saturday morning uh, breakfast wrap offering. That's Hawk Restaurant. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, welcome back to the program. Again, Ed Fallon here, your host, as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Later in the program, we'll be talking with Dr. Mark Allen Derry, an infectious disease physician in New Orleans who has been on the front lines of the coronavirus fight since the beginning. We'll also talk, Kathy Burns, Kathy Burns will join us and we'll talk about the huge decision relevant to the Dakota Access Pipeline, which basically says it will be shut down by August 5th. Joining me now on this segment of the program is Maya Phelps. She's a young black student from uh, Mingo, Iowa. She just graduated from Baxter High School. She was the valedictorian, and she's been very active in the Black Lives Matter protests and uh, received some uh, kind of front and center intention, attention recently in what turned out to be um, a very concerning, uh, a very deeply, uh, what, what do I want to say? Uh, an interaction with the police that drew a lot of criticism and a lot of concern. Uh, Maya, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. So um, the video that was broadcast on one of the local TV stations uh, showed you um, engaging with the, uh, I think the Des Moines police and maybe the state capitol patrol as well. And um, you, were, you were really, really upset. And uh, Correct. tell us why you were so upset. Well, um, I showed up at the capitol around one o'clock when when they said that the protest was starting. And we've been there for about three weeks with the same nonviolent protests, trying to get Kim Reynolds to sign an executive order restoring voting rights to uh, felons who had already served their sentence. And I came expecting the same thing that we've been doing for the past three weeks. And right off the bat, we were confronted by state patrol and police officers arresting women based on photographs and they hadn't read them their charges showed them a warrant they just said that we are arresting you so who, who, we who? already had heated, heated conversation well they did and then they detained her um, one of the black women in a room rather than taking her straight to the police car which was another thing that um, started some discourse between the 
the protesters and the police. And then when they escorted her out to the vehicle, they um, they were manhandling her. She was telling them, oh, you're hurting me, please stop. And so some of the organizers were nonviolently escorting her out with them to make sure that she was safe. And the police engaged in some very violent behavior right following that. They were tackling people to the ground, including me. I was thrown to the ground by a police officer when just trying to uh, get a phone from one of the organizers um, when he asked me to take his phone um, because he was being arrested. And out of nowhere, the police were just engaging in all of this violence. And it started this thread of events that were almost a blur to most of us because no one came to the Capitol expecting what had happened. And again, you were inside the Capitol itself, which means you had to go through security, right. which means you didn't have any weapons. Yes. Uh, Correct. And you were inside the Capitol and, and nobody was acting up, but the police no. came and arrested people that they alleged were responsible for damaging a police vehicle, I believe, at an earlier protest. Do I have that right? Right. Yes. Okay. So that and they, they were doing this they were doing this based on a sheet of paper with photographs that didn't even have names. They didn't even know the names of the people they were supposed to arrest. They were just matching photographs with people. And why why would the police choose to do it at that moment at a time when you've got I mean a whole bunch of people together for a very specific purpose? It just seems like it's really bad timing. From their point of view, right. you're just, just trying it to think was, like a police officer here. I think that would be really bad timing. Right. And to to us, it seemed as if it was a retaliation. Right. Because the day before, we were um, we followed Kim Reynolds to her uh, press conferences in Ackley, Iowa, and in Steamboat Rock. And That's they a were long drive. about that. <laughs> yes. And they wouldn't let us on the property, um, even though it, it says on her website that it was a public press conference. Um, but she intentionally held it on private property so that they could deny us access. Hmm. Um, and then the day before the, those press conferences, we were also at the Capitol. And they were, they were at police officer of the state patrol that were there were already agitated by, by protesters there. Because, like I said, we've been there for three weeks, and they were—they are—they're tired of us. <laughs> so you seem like a very calm, reasonable person, um, right. and you—you you had to have been pretty angry to have um, been yelling at the police. I mean, they, they had to have really gotten right. under your skin. I mean, it, it sounds like nobody was expecting people to be arrested inside the Capitol, no. and then all of a sudden they're being dragged out. And then people who are trying to figure out what's going on are being manhandled, treated treated very you know, you know disrespectfully by the police. So I guess I can understand why you would be upset. I do know that some of the uh, chatter on uh, Facebook uh, from people in in Jasper County in your hometown uh, from the same school district were um, yeah. were pretty uh, were pretty hard on you. Were calling for you to be stripped of yeah. your honor as a valedictorian. Um, I can't remember what else they were saying, but they were pretty harsh, uh, pretty harsh in their right. criticism. How do you, uh, has anything developed from that? Anything positive or even, I hope not, more negative? Um, I have received 
amazing support from the community as well. At first, it was overwhelming, um, the negative comments, the people saying that I am calling me names and telling me that I should be stripped of all these honors that I worked so hard for. But in response to that, I received um, people who I I hadn't even met before reaching out to me, telling me how they support what I'm doing and are proud of me. Um, graduates from 19, anywhere from 1995 to, to 2005, like we had, I had people who I'd never met friend me on Facebook just to tell me how proud they are and that they encouraged me. So that was, that's a positive that's come out of that. Oh, very good. But to have, but to have people who I have known for 14 years, um, come for me on Facebook, not even in private. Uh, it was, it was, in a, it was showed their true colors and it was awakening for me mm. to see who supports and even wants to understand where I'm coming from because I can watch that video and see why people would be upset with what I did. I'm not. And honestly, I have no shame in what I did, but I can see where people are coming from, but to have them not have the respect or courtesy to me, to not reach out to me privately, but to go to Facebook publicly, that was that was what the most shocking part of it for me. I think. And again, that video was only a, a snapshot; just a, just captured a little bit of the entire situation. And, right. and and maybe if folks had seen the entire scenario unfold, starting with the questionable arrests of people in the Capitol, maybe that would have um, changed their perspective. Maybe not, because obviously there's you know even though overwhelmingly Americans support. Uh, what the Black Lives Matter movement is doing, they, the overwhelming number of Americans understand we've got a we've got racism in this country, and they support addressing um, police uh, brutality. Uh, you know, the people who are not in favor of any of that, and again, they're they're a smaller percentage of the public, but those those folks tend to be very very vocal, and and, and in my experience is they'll latch onto anything at all. For example, if um, if there's an incident where there's some looting. Uh, and that looting may be caused by just somebody who's an opportunist and trying to take advantage of a protest, or it may be caused by somebody who's on the other side who wants to make the movement look bad. Uh, those folks who are just, just dug their heels in and don't want to see any changes and don't understand racism and don't understand police brutality, they're going to latch onto those and try to tarnish the entire movement. And I, I get that. And so, you know, I, I think it's really good that you're trying to do what you can to reach out to people who may have responded negatively and I, I, I encourage more people to take a, you know take an example from your effort there to do that um, I think one one thing that I really challenge people to do is question le- the legitimacy of of our authority and of not just our authority but of our representation um, one woman black lives matter leader Indira said this so eloquently the other day is if they can if they can put these unjust laws on us like in wisconsin it is legal to resist in an illegal arrest uh, arrest um non-violently resist but in iowa it is illegal so she said so perfectly like why are we not questioning the legitimacy of all laws if they are putting these a couple illegitimate laws on us like another example is that kim reynolds signed 
uh, a bill saying that we can legally um, have to go alcohol orders during the same time that we're fighting for felon or voting rights for felons who had already served their sentences. So why are we not questioning the legitimacy of Kim Reynolds and her authority and not blindly following authority? Because I would say what I did in that situation is I, I held them accountable. And if we are blindly following everyone who's in, th- in authority, we're never holding these people accountable. And as citizens, we have every right to do that. And in, in the Declaration of Independence, it says that we have the right to hold our to hold our um, authority accountable, to hold our government accountable. Spoken like a valedictorian who has done her research. <laughs> Very good. Let, <laughs> let me ask you, uh, Mingo is a small town, 300 people, I believe, around that number. And uh, right. I imagine there's not a large black population in Mingo. No. No, there's not. H- how, many, uh, how, many, how many residents are black? Um, I think as of the last census, it was two. But there was a new family, so I think there, if I had to guess, it would be around seven or eight. Yeah. Okay. And what about the school district? What about the Baxter School District? In the high school... Um, black identifying, I think there's three. Okay. Have you, have you and the others, uh, uh, have you experienced racism either in your town or in your school? Oh, yes. <laughs> and yeah. I even said in that post where I was justifying what I had done that it was, that my reaction wasn't just because of what had happened to me that day, it's, it was a buildup of 17 years of right. microaggressions and hate speech and, and just racial, racial discrimination. Yeah. Um, I've been called, I've been called the N word. I've been, I've been targeted because of what I represent as a person, my beliefs, which I think at its core is because of my skin color. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Maya, and uh, and I am I'm, I'm honored to have a chance to to visit with you and and to look forward to hearing from you, you know, in, in terms of how this um this movement moves forward. I know there's a lot of things that are being demanded right now, as they should be, and I know the, uh, the a lot of the effort right now here in Central Iowa is focused on getting Kim Reynolds to uh, sign uh, sign an executive order allowing felons to receive their, their right to vote back. And right. again, that was something I worked on as a legislator. It's amazing to me that it hasn't happened yet. So I commend you and others for pushing hard to make that change among others. So again, thank you so much for joining us, Maya. Thank you. Thank folks, you so much. Folks, we've been talking with a 17-year-old, 17-year-old Maya Phelps from Mingo, Iowa, a very active participant in the Black Lives Matter movement who uh, recently uh, came under some fire for uh, for her stand uh, during what appeared to be an unlawful arrest in, during one of the uh, protests at the state capitol. When we come back from a short break, uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry is going to join us. We're going to talk about the coronavirus, and uh, he's been on the front lines as a as a, as a leading physician <clears throat> that um, that has been fighting to uh, make sure that folks have the treatment they need. We'll talk with him when we come back from a short break on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options 
like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads, or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Uh, thanks uh, so much for tuning in today, folks, and thanks to the local businesses and nonprofits that make this program possible. In particular, I'd like to thank uh, Bold Iowa, fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline and climate change since 2015. That's boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. Check out birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. Welcome to the program. The uh, segment, we're, uh, this segment, we're, um, you know, I would, I'd love to think that we, um, that we kind of move on from um, the contentious elements of the coronavirus conversation, but I'm afraid not. And I'm delighted to have uh, Dr. Mark Allen Derry with us. Uh, he joined us at the very front end of the corona crisis. He's an infectious disease physician on the front lines of the battle against the coronavirus in New Orleans. He's also the founder of WHIV Radio in New Orleans. Mark Allen, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Are you still um, getting four hours of sleep a night, or is that getting a little bit better for you? It's, it's getting a little better. <laughs> I mean, that, you know, sleep is uh, one thing uh, that I've committed myself to during this epidemic. Sleep and exercise, which I've, I've always been fairly committed to, but I'm more committed than ever. So I've been trying to at least get at least six to eight hours of sleep a night, uh, you know, just to keep myself sane. And, and really, that's really the only known proven way to build immunity is to make sure that sleep is as is, is, uh, is intact as possible. Huh. That's good. That's a good reminder for all of our audience. So um, I, I know uh, New Orleans is one of the early hotspots, um, mm -hmm. New York, New Orleans, um, Washington State. What is the situation like presently in Louisiana, in New Orleans specifically? Well, if you if we had talked about three weeks ago, I would say we were doing great. Uh, but given that the uh, governor moved us into phase three, for better or worse, that may be another conversation or maybe something to talk about later. Uh, of course, uh, did I say phase three? I'm sorry, I meant to say phase two. Um, moving into phase two, things have gotten, of course, you know, you're increasing the amount of capacity of bars and restaurants and uh, public gatherings 
from like 10 to 100 and then 25% to 50% uh, in terms of uh, capacity in uh, bars and restaurants and what have you, you're going to see an uptick in cases. That is without question uh, something that, you know, we warned him about. We've, we've been warning, you know, all public health or epidemiologist folks. Uh, that's what we've been doing. So now, of course, we're seeing an uptick in cases happening. Uh, and of course, not quite the uptick that we're seeing in the states that surround us, like Florida on one side of us and Texas immediately to the west of us. Those states are on fire. Um, but that was largely because they didn't have any phased reopenings. They just kind of went from like, you know, zero to 100, you know, you know, like a flick of a switch, you know. So at least for us, the phased openings have been somewhat helpful in helping to keep the cases at a manageable level with respect to not over burdening the healthcare system. Now, as a percentage of the um, new cases, do you see as many hospitalizations? Um, so we are now starting to see an increase in hospitalizations, and that's just because of, of numbers. Um, I think that uh, that we are getting, now that we know the virus better, I think that we're able to do a little bit more with being able to keep folks at home. Uh, and so I think that the ER docs are able to kind of manage some of these things from, uh, you know, not, you know, whereas before I think everybody was being admitted. I think we're only admitting those that truly need to be admitted, those with, you know, significant oxygenation problems or, you know, that have secondary issues, you know, kidney problems or liver problems or some of the other, you know, cardiovascular or endovascular, that's the bloodstream, the strokes and those sorts of things that we're seeing that the virus can do in some susceptible people. Now, another physician uh, friend that, I, that I've, I've talked with indicated that it's possible that the coronavirus is less um, powerful during the warmer, more humid months and that even though people are still contracting it at a very high rate, the fatality level might be down because the virus is weakened and that that may change once we hit fall and the weather cools off again. Do you think that's a, is that a reasonable theory? I, uh, I don't like to denigrate uh, my colleagues, <laughs> uh, especially when I haven't talked to them personally, but I am completely unaware of that as being a, uh, as being a viable, like there's just no, there's no biology that I can see that that would happen. There, like the, the, the biology of viruses, just things don't work like that. Yeah. You know, I, the reason why we're seeing a decrease in mortality is that we're just becoming better at treating it. Yeah. Like we now know you don't need to put everybody on a ventilator. The study that came out in New York about, God, I think it was two months ago, I, I even time even for me has been very fluid. So I can't even remember when that study <laughs> came out. But it was a very pivotal study that showed that like over 50% of people or I think even 80% of people who were on ventilators ended up dying. Um, uh, and that was largely because uh, the virus is so new and we had never seen anything like this before. Whereas before, if people were particularly hypoxic, had low oxygenation levels, we would just put them on a ventilator immediately. Whereas now we realize that, that this virus, we don't need to do that with, but it was those people who didn't, didn't necessarily need to have that oxygen, they were probably the ones that were most at risk for, for dying. So we now realize that we're not putting everybody on ventilators. Mm -hmm. So we're just getting better. We're also being able to kind of you know, be able to prevent the secondary infections that happen in hospitals and stuff like that. So I think we're just getting better at treating the virus. And that's why you're seeing a decrease in what's called the virulence. And that's the word that you were looking for. The virulence describes how 
quote unquote powerful a particular virus may be against its host, right? Humans, us. So, but it is true that over time, viruses become less virulent the more time they spend in a human population. And that's largely because it's to the virus's benefit to not kill its host right the whole point of a virus is to replicate its genes right same thing as human beings right the whole point is to replicate genes so viruses don't necessarily want to kill their host uh, they don't want to have that that you know from an existential perspective looking at it from the perspective of the virus killing your host is not good so right. what happens is that natural selection over time selects viruses uh, that are less virulent, that, that are less likely to kill the host, those are the viruses that end up being selected through natural selection. And on that same, along that same line of thought, does the, uh, I mean, the virus obviously does not want us to, to gain immunity, but are, are, do, are we seeing any signs that that's happening, that people who've had the coronavirus won't get it again and will not be contagious? So that's such a good question. So let's, I'll start with the contagious part first. Um, so you're mostly contagious for about the first 10 days of exposure to virus. So those, those first 10 days, those first seven days, you may not even know that you have it, right? You are asymptomatic or presymptomatic. And that's when the virus is most uh, transmissible. And that's a very, very smart evolutionary way for viruses to act, right? Because like with the SARS virus, you were only you were only transmitting virus when you were symptomatic. Well, if you're symptomatic, most people know, stay indoors, don't go out, you know, you're sick, most people don't want to go out anyway because you feel crummy, that sort of stuff. So from a evolutionary, again, speaking from an evolutionary perspective, from the virus's perspective, it's very smart to be able to, and a lot of virus, cold viruses do this very, very well. So does influenza virus. You are most transmissible before you are symptomatic because when you're symptomatic, by that time, you've already transmitted virus for a couple days. And remember, and now let's get into the second part of the question, the coronavirus is part, you know, 30% of the annual common cold viruses that we get are coronaviruses. So we have all already been exposed to coronaviruses, right, as common colds. And so what happens is that what we know now, now just to get slightly technical, those are what are called alpha coronaviruses. And what we've seen are beta coronaviruses. This COVID-19 virus is a beta coronavirus. And so what's likely to happen is that, um, one is that uh, you do build immunity uh, and it's likely to to last for a couple of years. What we are seeing is that antibodies are no longer detectable after a couple of months. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've lost immunity because there's other levels of immunity that just can't be measured and that we can't measure that we know that we have. Mostly it's referred to as innate immunity. And so, um, but essentially what we don't know and what I think a really interesting question is, and I think this is what you were asking, is that can we get this like next year if it becomes a seasonal like virus, right? So let's say the virus circulates the globe once or twice. It has enough mutations on it now that it's circulated the globe once or twice. Could it come back to us and, uh, uh, and give us a second uh, infection because it's not quite the same as the first round? The answer is yes. Right. And in fact, it, and here's where I can help, you know, possibly pivot the conversation. Here is that we will almost 
I was going to say almost see that for sure, but let me let me be a little bit more conservative. That is very likely to happen, especially if the the president remains faithful to his idea of cutting four hundred million dollars and leaving the WHO altogether. I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you about that because uh, I mean, you would think at a time of pandemic, if you were giving a Fourth of July speech in front of oh say an iconic monument like the uh, Mount Rushmore. You'd mentioned more than the more than in one passing comment the urgency of the coronavirus. Um, but uh, you know, President Trump used that opportunity to barely touch on the virus, which you know most most measures of public opinion say that uh, folks are not real impressed with how he's handling it. So I kind of understand why he would avoid it. But um, he kind of used that opportunity and a subsequent address from the White House to basically just create dynamic, uh, you know, divisions within the political, uh, you know, spectrum. And I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what to say about it, but <laughs> he doesn't seem to be having any uh, capacity to generate a, a different approach to the coronavirus. And this, this is going to be, um, you know, we, you know, when we look back onto the, the dark ages and we're like, oh man, you know, they didn't even realize they were in the dark ages, right? You know, they, those were the dark ages. They didn't even realize it, you know, and, and you look back to some of the atrocities that have happened, you know, even in the last century, the different, you know, world wars that we've had. And, you know, I, I in 50 years, people are going to look back onto us and just ponder how did this just become such an epic failure you know public public school classes are going to be taught there's going to be whole courses taught especially courses that are going to be taught outside of the u.s uh, but there's going to be whole courses taught about how this was just epically like every every step of the way this will be studied mul in multiple courses by mul and i myself will probably be teaching one of those classes you know? <laughs> um and how the, the how the the epic failure uh, uh, of this and 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 just to get to the human perspective of this as well we are at about 130,000 deaths and that's conservatively speaking that is you know twice you know vietnam wars you know that is that is more than soldiers uh and military people that we lost during world war one it's all uh, it's, it's also twice the number that donald trump said we were we'd probably have Sure, sure, absolutely. 60, 000, and, and we are going to see a lot more. And if Dr. Fauci uh, is is correct, and he's estimating about 100,000 cases, I, I think that's a lot, but he has the numbers and he has the people, and Dr. Fauci is very measured in what he says. So he wouldn't say that unless he had data or modeling to strongly suggest that that's going to be the case. But let's say it is. If there's 100,000 people a day, that's 10 days. We're going to be at every 10 days, we're going to be adding a million cases that is going to significantly overwhelm the healthcare system as well as we are going to see a sharp rise in mortality uh, just even though the doctors even though we know how to treat this as, as good as possible some people just are gonna die you know that's just that's the reality of the situation and this is excess mortality and, and when I say excess mortality that means these are mortalities that did not need to be that did not need to be had, if you will. Let me give you, let me put it into perspective. I am sure you covered in, in over the course of your program the idea of these uh, deaths of despair, 
Have you covered that in your program at all? These are these deaths of, of middle-aged individuals that are typically dying of like alcoholism or drug overdoses or whatever. And it's become so, it's, it's been so much in the last couple of years that it has actually pulled down the, um, the age expectancy of Americans. Do, those deaths of despair um, are about 70 to 80,000 deaths a year. So we're at 130. So do you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. it, it's, it, it is, it, it, that's, and again, these are known cases. There was a very, you heard uh, Dr. Redfield uh, last uh, week, uh, the head of the CDC, uh, not somebody I often quote uh, because he was a political appointee. He has never run a, uh, a, a federal agency before, let alone something as important as the CDC. But he estimated uh, something that we as epidemiologists have been talking about for some time, and that is that there's a, a huge number of uncounted cases, and the CDC released a number of 10. So that means for every one case that's known, there's 10 cases that are unknown. So if we're at about, I just looked it up before we got on air here, I'll look it up again. If we're at 2 million, 2.7 million, I think, cases, I mean, multiply that by 10, and you can see we have an enormous amount of cases uh, uh, happening. Yeah. And it's really... It is. It's a shame, uh, and it's it's a huge. Um, yeah, we have three thousand, just north of three million cases. Uh, so we probably have thirty million cases. See, three million cases. That's what what one percent of roughly the U.S. population. Yeah, roughly. I mean, so yeah, it is. It's it is an. Um, this was all. This was none of this. None of this. Uh, we didn't have to do this. If you look at our country versus the rest of the world, we are doing incredibly worse. Look at the countries. Here, here's an interesting way of looking at things. Ed, you'll appreciate this. Look at the countries that are doing the worst. It's the U.S., it's Brazil, um, it's India, and it's Russia. Gee, right? what, what do those so, four have in common? Let me exactly, think. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Modi, <laughs> Putin, and uh, uh, Bolsonaro, right? I mean, yeah. that's exactly right. That's why I want you to appreciate that. Uh, and so, yeah, you can see that these highly authoritarian or authoritative um, figures or these countries that are run by authoritative figures, just there's a sense of they just don't care, you know? And, and when you look at, you know, how are our, our partners, our, our global partners going to look at us moving forward in the future when they realize that our leaders don't care enough about the citizens yeah. that they would do basic public health measures to keep us safe. Mark Allen, I've got to run to a break here, but I, I do want, I want to have you back on the program before the, the uh, general election to get your take on how, 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 the, uh, how the coronavirus, how, how, how it's handling by the president and by Democratic leaders as well. How, it, how it's handling has affected the, uh, the likely outcome. We have, uh, I mean, it's always hard to predict how things are going to turn out, but I think it'll be interesting to see in three or four months, for example, where we're at with that. So hopefully we can get you back on at that time. Absolutely. It'd be a pleasure. Folks, we've been talking with Dr. Mark Allen Derry. He's an he's a infectious disease physician in New Orleans and uh, always a wealth of information when it comes to talking about the coronavirus We'll be back in a few minutes when we're going to talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline ruling coming out of uh, the federal courts relevant to the, the, uh, Sioux, the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, but certainly has a huge impact on what happens here in Iowa as well. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. 
Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week. They're doing takeout. Give them a shout, folks. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Ritual Cafe on 13th Street in downtown Des Moines. Fair Trade Coffee, Fair Trade Tea, and an all-vegetarian menu also doing takeout. That's Ritual Cafe. Thanks for tuning in to today's program. And with me now is Kathy Burns. We're... This is a big week, folks, and uh, we're not going to talk about birds and bees and urban farming today. We're going to talk about the Dakota Access Pipeline and the huge ruling that come down from the federal government in response to the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe's lawsuit alleging that the Army Corps of Engineers did not do a thorough environmental review. The uh, judge had already ruled that, yeah, that's the case, and the question remained, was the judge going to say that, okay, while the Army Corps is doing a, an appropriate review, that pipeline could still be running oil? Well, this week, a Monday morning, in fact, he issued the ruling, no, uh, that pipeline must shut down while that review is underway. And uh, the pipeline has until August 5th to uh, comply with that order, to cease running oil, and to... Um, <laughs> It's it's kind of a, it's a bit overwhelming. Um, I don't know if we really saw this coming. Um, maybe some did. I would, I didn't. I've been paying more attention to the whole question about whether the Illinois Commerce Commission is going to approve the proposed doubling of oil. But now this isn't even this is a huge opportunity to point out that yeah, um, this um, these five hundred thousand seven what five hundred seventy thousand barrels of oil a day are not just a threat to our land, our water, to native you know, sovereignty. They're a threat to our climate. And if you double that oil, that doubles the threat, doubles the damage. And it makes it even more difficult for us to dig out of the climate hole we're already in. So here we are trying to process this and decide what to do next. Kathy, what do you think? Uh, I'm having a hard time processing this too. I've been uh, fighting this pipeline since I first got that big packet of mail when I lived in rural Jasper County, telling me that my home was on the route of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And when I started speaking out against it, people really told me that they, they didn't understand why it was a done deal. And we- they, they, they didn't understand why you were speaking out. Why I was Because they thought out. it was a done deal. Right, they, right. They, said it was, they said the pipeline was going to be done no matter what anybody did. And sure enough, that pipeline got built and, and oil has been flowing through it since what, June 1st, 2017. 17. But, but you know, I mean, it, 
it didn't it didn't happen as quickly as energy transfer thought right. it would. Um, you know, we meaning landowners, farmers, environmentalists, native people, all the work we did slowed it down quite a bit. And now, well, now it remains to be seen whether it might be shut off completely. I, I know. When I when I heard the news, I I didn't even react at first. I thought, okay, okay, that's that's something that that could make it interesting. Because I <laughs> it's almost it's almost too much to hope for now, but but I think it's a very reasonable thought that this could be the nail in the coffin for the oil flowing through that pipe and um, and really uh, protecting the communities and the waterways along that pipeline route. That's been a big concern of mine is just what, what happens when it leaks and it will. Yeah, And it's not, I mean, all around the country right now, we're seeing pushback, effective pushback against pipeline projects. Certainly the uh, Keystone XL pipeline in Nebraska has yet to be built uh, despite... Um, prolonged and intense efforts to accomplish that by TransCanada. And, uh, and now the now rulings coming out against the, uh, the Mariner pipeline. Um, you know, we'll, um, we'll see where this goes, but I'm pretty optimistic that we have, uh, we have seen the turning point in this battle to stop the, the incredible expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure. I'd like to see energy transfer really uh, kind of get their due on this because they've been so audacious and so um, rude just presuming that anything they do is okay. The way they've treated some of the landowners, and you've had some people on to tell about the trash that they left in, in the soil saying that the pipeline was done and complete and cleaned up and they have just left a mess behind. And then just telling the IO Utilities Board and other, uh, the other states said, oh, by the way, we're going to double the flow of oil in the pipeline instead of asking first. I was right. really glad at least the mm -hmm. IUB said, hold your horses. We're, we're not just going to you know, permit that right away, but they eventually did. And I hope they'll revisit that. Well, and the extent to which they're willing to lie. I mean, I've heard so many stories around the state, when I, when I, especially when I was out walking that, the length of the pipeline, the, the, the things that I heard from people about the lies they were told, Perhaps the worst lie was what I heard from you mm -hmm. regarding two of your neighbors in Jasper County. Right. Um, a, a good friend and his brother farmed side by side in Jasper County. And they'd been, you know, they're old time farmers. and uh, Strong Republicans. Uh, yeah. Nice people. Nice people. And they neither of them was, was going to stand for this pipeline because it was their land and they didn't want oil running through it. And they each refused to sign the voluntary easement that... Uh, energy transfer was offering them, Dakota Access was offering them, and they couldn't get those two guys, those two brothers to sign. And they went to each brother separately, and they told each one, um, you know, your brother just signed, so you might as well sign. And they tricked each of those brothers into signing. They tricked, and they when, lied. When that guy told oh. me that story, sitting in my kitchen, uh, that was on the Young Turks program, by the way, he, he had tears in his eyes, and uh, he could not believe that, that somebody would do that kind of um, underhanded move. Yeah. But they do. That's what they do to yeah. get the whole thing in. Well, it's a, you know, at some point there was going to be a turning point in this whole battle because it is not sustainable to continue to live on buried sunshine, as I like to call it. You know, fossil fuels, uh, you know, energy that was, um, that was uh, basically put in play back when 
you know, back when we had creatures that are now fossils. <laughs> so, it, like and, we will be someday. Like we will. <laughs> I'm not sure we'll get to be no, fossils. We'll I'd be, be happy to get to be compost. We'll yes, be compost. but the, uh, you know, this. The, and so, I what I, what I want to say to people is this: Don't just say, "Oh, this was great." Now, isn't that wonderful? They're going to stop the oil. Let's make this happen. Let's let's yes. let's take this opportunity and really push hard. Now, there may be different things that people in different states can do. And certainly our, our, our friends and allies in Illinois uh, have maybe an increased argument now with the Illinois Commerce Commission about whether they should approve the expansion. But I think right now, I mean, what I, what I, like, what I think we should do here is to focus on uh, the Iowa Utilities Board and say, look, we know you recently approved that expansion, but now given the fact that this federal, federal judge is shutting down the pipeline, I mean, it's not going to be running oil, Unless something changes that we don't see coming, it's not going to be running oil. And, you know, you went ahead and approved an expansion of this. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's time to go back and revisit that and say, okay, given the changes, you know, given this court ruling, and also given the escalation of, of, of scientifically dem- demonstrable impacts of the climate mm-hmm. crisis. I mean, climate change is only getting worse and worse. The, the warming continues, the impacts uh, exa- are, are becoming more serious. And let's appeal to the utilities board with those two considerations, this, this, this court ruling and climate change. On those grounds, let's appeal to them to revisit the decision and back off their, you know, their support for expanding the flow of oil. If a proper environmental impact study is done, they are sure to see that uh, that that the earth cannot sustain projects like this. It can't sustain the one that's in the ground right now, and it can't sustain, as you say, things keep getting pulled out of the earth that were, were there for a purpose, and we just can't, we can't go on like this. Yeah, and, and again, the impacts on, on, on native sovereignty, on property rights, the, the use of eminent domain to build this thing in the first place, just, just an abomination. And uh, the impacts on water, on land, and the stories we keep hearing from farmers about how their crops have been compromised, their soil has been compromised. There's so many reasons why this was a bad idea, and there's nothing, there's, there's nothing, there's no better response to a bad idea than to put an end to it. And maybe that's what we just seen the beginning of this week because of that federal ruling. Folks, thanks for tuning in to today's program. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host on the Fallon Forum. Thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Herdina. Thanks to the stations in Iowa and around the country that broadcast this program. And please join us. Um, you can tune into the podcast uh, on, on a website, on the uh, FallonForum.com website. Also, it's available on Stitcher and on Apple Podcasts.